0: So these three weeks in January, between now and Intercession, we're going to do a short series out of the Book of Ecclesiastes. All right? Yeah, Ecclesiastes. So when I was uh, when I was a student, one of my good friends at Princeton, he uh, uh, he'd been very depressed and he wasn't a believer, and uh, and I was sharing the faith with him. And I was encouraging him to read the Bible. And uh, you know, I'd come into his room and it'd be like dark. You'd have the lights off. You'd be listening to like really depressing music. And he was reading the Bible, but it was always Ecclesiastes. He was reading it over and over. And I was trying to get him to stop. (laughs) And I was like, you know, like, let's turn to a gospel, you know, or a psalm. A psalm is very close to Ecclesiastes, um, or an epistle. And he would have none of it. He would just read Ecclesiastes. And the reason I was trying to get him to stop, and that was foolish, because Ecclesiastes was exactly what he needed and what led him to faith. In God. But the reason I wanted him to stop is because Ecclesiastes is arguably the least encouraging book in the Bible. Arguably, it's the most encouraging book in the Bible. Mm-hmm. But arguably, it's the least encouraging. And so we're going to dive into that. And so we're, I'm spending three weeks on this. My job tonight, I'll tell you what my job is. So my dad says Ecclesiastes, yeah, my dad wrote a commentary on Ecclesiastes. In that, he says, <laughs> 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 My dad says about it. You know,
1: mind am quoting him. What he says about it is, it, it
0: takes you, it, it ta- shows, takes you to the brink of hell to show you the threshold of heaven. The brink of hell. Let me let me unpack what that means. Um, when I was uh, once on a service trip with PCF, we went down to North Philadelphia, inner city context. Um, there's an alum there who does work with you. There are a couple of alums there who do work with you. And I remember being in this ministry center. We were doing work there, and there's this like poster on the wall. that had this like. Flood of people in a city, and they're all like rushing over this cliff into the flames. You know, it was very jarring. And then up above, there was this like narrow path, and then a bridge over the chasm that was across and that led to the heavenly city. And I remember just being so shocked coming from a suburban context. You know, where we would never put posters like that up on the wall. Maybe we should take it up here (laughs) on Friday night. Um, You see, this is the image of Ecclesiastes. It's saying this is where we are. We're in this crowd. We're rushing, uh, rushing into the pit. And what Ecclesiastes is doing is trying to open our eyes to that reality. Or it's speaking to the person whose eyes are already open, who already knows, who looks around, and who sees that reality. But, bit by bit, also, it, Ecclesiastes, the writer of Ecclesiastes, who's called the preacher, the preacher's trying to lift our eyes up to God. But my job tonight is that first part, more so than the second part. You're going to have to come back, right? If tonight I leave you like despairing of why you should continue, come back. Hold on at least one more week and come back to the second part. But I want it, so I wanted to explain that. And I'm going to read an extended passage of Ecclesiastes. So please follow along with it and you'll get a sense of what the preacher is saying. So I'm going to read all of chapter 1 and the first 11 verses of chapter 2. Hear the word of the Lord. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full, to the place where the streams flow, where there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor that ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who are over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I have applied my heart To know wisdom, and to know madness and folly, I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure what use is it. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. And how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, it I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended, doing it. And behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Amen. Let me pray as I open up. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless this, your word, to us, uh, Lord God, whether we're coming tonight from a position of being far from any sense of weariness, or whether, Heavenly Father, it is very close to us, Lord God, may these words uh, pierce our hearts, uh, illumine our minds. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the, there, there are a few, few key phrases. One, a few key words. So in Hebrew, the, the, the back, going back to verse 1, the words of the preacher, the word is Koheleth, um, the preacher, the son of David, traditionally this is identified with Solomon, is the writer of Ecclesiastes. So the words of the preacher. And the second Hebrew word you need to know in verse 2 is the one that's translated, at least in this translation, is vanity. It's used five times there in verse 2. It's the word hebel. Vanity isn't quite right. I mean, when we talk about someone who's vain, we mean they're like in love with their own good looks. Right? And vanity, what, what this means, uh, other translations give meaningless. Uh, you could say it's Really, it's like mist, water vapor. That's the meaning of the Hebrew word. It's something you can't grasp. Right? So this is what the preacher is struggling with. It's like here, he has set his mind to wisdom, to pleasure, to work, seeking meaning, and what he has found is vapor, right? That word, this Hebel, it gets repeated, this vanity, this meaningless, this futility, right? So he has this struggle, and so I want to talk about vanity in the preacher's life, vanity understood in that, that sense of vapor and mist, Vanity in his life. Vanity then second in our lives, and third, escape, escape from vanity. So first, first in the life of the preacher. So what 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 has the preacher done for us? He's done this great experiment, right? I mean, way back. It's so it's it's so strange because what, the way he writes, he could be writing like a 20th century existentialist or 21st century millennial, or 18th century skeptic. But here he is. He's writing way back at the dawn of written documents in Western civilization, right? Way back there, and already he feels with more with much wisdom as much vexation. He who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Already he feels that his work wearies him. Later, in chapter two, that he hates. He hates his toil right? It's him. And how has he done this? He's experimented. He's in a position to experiment because he has wealth and power and wisdom. And so he's tried. He's tried with knowledge. He's worked at it. Not merely knowledge, but understanding. He's looked into things. He sees, I love this later on, it's like, what's the point of toil? Because you don't know if the person who inherits what you've done will be wise or a fool, right? Marcus Aurelius passed on the empire to Commodus. If you don't know Roman, Empire, Roman imperial history, watch Gladiator. It's mostly wrong, but it gets this point, right? It's like we don't have control over, what we pa- over who we pass on our work to. And knowledge, knowledge, I love this. This is one of the most useful things about Princeton. I love to say that, is it teaches you that knowledge in and of itself, knowledge, and this is a key phrase for in Ecclesiastes, knowledge of what is under the sun, what is in this world, of what's in our hearts, knowledge of what's under the sun, is insufficient to achieve the kind of satisfaction or meaning or purpose that we desire, right? We learn this at Princeton. We have knowledge, right? So the preacher, he had knowledge. But chapter 2, these verses in chapter 2 are amazing, the first 11 verses in chapter 2. So, okay, so he's decided knowledge increases sorrow. Wisdom leads to much vexation. Vexation is a fancy word for it, it makes you unhappy. <laughs> and here in chapter 2, so it's like he's like, he tries doing things. And so in Ecclesiastes, I'm just, I'm just going to call some of them out. A wine. Great works, houses, vineyards, gardens, parks, fruit trees, pools, a forest, slaves. Great herds and flocks, more than anyone before. Right? He's not just got the stuff. He's got it like comparative stuff, right? More than anyone who came before. And my wisdom remained with me, right? So he's drinking, he's building great homes, he's got flocks. He continues on, I gathered silver and gold. I got singers, both men and women, all parts, good choir, and many concubines. He just went full force. Let's try it all. Sex, drink. A little more sophisticated, like home improvement, (laughs) horticulture, right? Silver and gold, the arts. He did it all. He did it all. He could, and so he did. And what did he find? He found it was slipping from his grasp, right? It was slipping from his grasp. He had enough wisdom to see in all that he was doing, in all that he was trying, that it was this vapor. Right? It wearied him. So, this, the, the valley, this is what he's ruminating on. He's ruminating on it from the position of having lived a life and looking back and seeing what he has accomplished and whether it matters. So, anyway, that's where he starts. He says a lot of other things in Ecclesiastes, which we will get to. There are a lot of, I mean, it's funny because one of the famous wedding. Passages that's quoted at weddings. Two, a three corded rope is strong, You know, is stronger. Two or three are better. is out of Ecclesiastes. Uh, there are a lot of beautiful passages in Ecclesiastes, but this is where he started. Right? It's not. He, if he says anything positive later, if he says anything hopeful, it's not because he's naive. It's not because he's ignorant. It's not because he hasn't encountered difficulty. Nor is it because he hasn't been blessed. He has everything. And yet he understands the limitation of all that exists under the sun. So the vanity of the, in the preacher's life. This, this is what he's struggling with in the book of Ecclesiastes. Well, what does that mean for us? Let's talk about vanity or meaninglessness in our lives. And, uh, you know, the, the phrase at Princeton, correct me if I'm wrong, but this was true when I was a student, is work hard, play hard. We still have that, Yeah. Work hard, play hard. Because, you know, depending who you're preaching to, you know, some of us are more like, okay, I will find meaning just through pleasure. You know, I will be like, in there in chapter 2, verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from that. And some of us are just focused on the work. You know, okay, this house didn't give me enough satisfaction, time to build a bigger one. <laughs> right? This garden could do with another planting. Or this singing could be that much better. Different ones of us have different temptations. But I think at Princeton, where we experience meaningless, I want, I want to focus especially on work, a little bit on pleasure. But especially on work, because you know that's really our true idol, the normal idol of the Princetonian is work. That tends to be our main focus. I know this because it's like seeing people. You know, I always think of my friend who was a sophomore when I was a freshman there down in Butler. He threw up like clockwork. Thursday, and Saturday night, he'd be there in the bathroom having it after drinking to excess. And I would ask him why. And he said, just to forget, <laughs> to, to release stress. But you know his idol is work and not drink, because the other, all the rest of the time, it was the work. And it was the work that was driving him to the drink. Right? But it was that work that he was focused on. So I, I want to talk a little bit. Bear with me here. I'm not trying to depress you. So I'm, I'm trying to open our eyes, as the writer of Ecclesiastes is trying to open our eyes, and talk a little bit about what it is that we are placing our hopes in under the sun. You know, and there are some things that are obvious that we like to pick on as meaningless. Some kinds of work, you know, notably Wall Street. You know, I, I was having a conversation with a student, um, Jay Sauerbeer. You <laughs> know, I and mean, it was like he was asking me if he should sell out to Wall Street, and um, and I. I said to him repeatedly, "Yes," um, and uh, you know he made some useful points. Why do we use that term "selling out"? Well, we use it because it's like the crassness of certain kinds of economic activity. Like it, it's obvious that it's just about profit, right? It's obvious, and so we're right to criticize. We're right to question our motives. If we're like, if someone offers us a job for good money as opposed to poor money, if they offer us a job for poor money and poor working conditions, right, we know we're not going to take it out of greed. (laughs) But, you know, if someone offers us a good job for good money in an industry that's just about money, period, right, we question that. And so we look at that and we say, yes, that, that is meaningless. Now, of course, I can't tell someone, I can't agree with that wholeheartedly because, of course. My salary is paid by people who work normal jobs, like on Wall Street, and who, in God by by God's grace, uh, support us financially. Right. So it's not it's not a um, but it's easy to look at that to say, okay, this is bad. That's what we say. All right, check mark. I want a meaning in my life. I'm not going to go into Wall Street. Step one. I did that, frankly. Right. I remember the Wall Street recruiting uh, things, but no. I wasn't going to go that way, and so then we turn. You know, we turn to higher, uh, uh, higher pleasures. Uh, we look to uh, law. Law is a favorite one for me. My wife is a corporate litigator, as you've heard, if you've heard me speak before on a Friday night. Um, and there we look at law, and we say again, there are high-minded things, there are purposeful things within that profession. But when you get right down to it, this is Ecclesiastes four. I'll jump ahead. Verse 4, I, I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after win. Christina, my wife, when she was a litigator, one of the partners she worked for, you know, was earning seven figures every year. And um, someone asked her, like, why do you work so hard? Right? Because her husband, she was earning millions and had been for years and years and years. But her husband had a hedge fund that he just sold, you know, for like $50 million. And so they're like, why are you working? Right? Your family already has so much money that there's just no need. Like, just the interest on your money is enough for a seven-figure living every year. And she said, well, I want to work so much that my children never have to work. That's what she said. You're like, you didn't say this to her because she's the boss. He said nothing to her except yes. <laughs> um, that's not why she worked. She already had enough money that her children wouldn't have to work the rest of their lives. And that's a terrible thing to do to your children, by the way. <laughs> terrible thing. Don't do that. <laughs> Why did she do it? She did it because she was addicted to the work. Right? It was the thing that she did. She couldn't enunciate a purposeful reason, but she kept doing it. That's a good lawyer, by the way. That's someone you want to hire. Mm. Right? Someone who idolizes their work that way. Because you know they're abandoning everything else in pursuit of delivery. Good work product. You don't, want to, you don't want to have them defining what is meaningful in life. So it's law, medicine. I just saw medicine is a it's an easier profession to find meaning in than law. I'll just tell you that straight out. It's an easier profession. You know, I just I watched my Facebook feed, I've won what so many alums are, are doctors, but one in particular, so earnest, mm-hmm. passionate, and sincere in his pursuit of the medical career in caring for those who are in need. So passionate and earnest. He had this post the other day. It's like, the worst day as a doctor is when someone stares you in the face and says, you only do this for the money. Right? I know doctors who only went into it for the money, actually. But this guy is not one of them. He's sincere and passionate. But what does he deal with day in and day out? Does he deal with people who are like, yes, you are one? I'm sure there are lots of people who say that. But like those few people who just straight to your face are like, You only do this for the money or other worse things. It weighs on you, right? If you are only pursuing medicine so that you can have what you think, like an idealized, like people will always praise me under the sun. I will have satisfaction in my job under the sun. It will be enough under the sun. And eventually you will reach that point where you will feel that vanity, right? You'll feel that futility. Well, let's leave aside law and medicine. Uh, Let me talk about academia. Academia, so I do graduate student ministry for, for PCF. I love the life of the mind. I love learning for its own sake. So should you embrace that between now and whenever your exams are done. And learning, <laughs> lear, learning is good. Knowledge is beautiful. I remember one, uh, one of our graduate alumni, he's a professor now out in the Middle East, and he said to me, you know what? It's like the, the chief purpose of academia is to perpetuate the notion the, 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 the chief end of man is to be a, the highest, this is what he said, the highest form of human existence is to be a tenured professor. Do you understand what he's saying? Academia exists, academia should exist to further, what? Further human knowledge. In a way, I don't know, further human knowledge. We'll just settle with that. But no, it actually exists to communicate the notion that the highest form of human existence is being a tenured professor. It's that comparative this is the one outcome that you should have, not any other. Your identity lies in the quality of the research, your fame, your right? This, if, let me go back to Ecclesiastes 4, verse 4. I have this like a note in my Bible, not this Bible, but my virtual Bible, um, <laughs> that references this relative academia. Then I saw all toil and all skill in work, and in work, this is Wall Street, this is law, medicine, academia. Then I saw all toil and all skill and work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. And it's just, it's this poison, right? It's envy, this pride, this ego, it's this poison in our veins that infiltrates all these things we try to do and find purpose with in our lives, including our jobs, also our pleasures, and other things, our knowledge. It infiltrates it and it corrupts it and it turns it into this vapor, right? It's like you have this great academic and you were big in your field and then you retire and they celebrate you and they hold a conference and give papers in your honor and then like your whole field is debunked or forgotten and no one cites your great papers once again because new people come along, right? There is no remembrance. Well, okay. So this was me, okay, cross out Wall Street but also, you know, law, medicine, academia, the nonprofit sector. This so is what I did the nonprofit sector. Uh, I think of a friend, I'm going to talk about two aspects of nonprofit. First, just general secular charity work, and second, specifically Christian ministry work and ways in which futility can enter in. And so, first, nonprofit charity work. Uh, another friend, another one of our graduate alumni, he works, I um, uh, do it for corporate responsibility. You know how big corporations, like, they feel... Gil, oh no, it's public relations. It's not out of Gill, It's out of public relations. <laughs> like, they fund um, charity work. Anyway, so he does this for this major corporation. I won't say which one. He wants this thing that's anti-malaria. He's fighting malaria. He's a smart man. This was so revealing to me. It's like, he's like, you know this vast, like, UN, there's this vast UN international NGO system to fight malaria. He's like, they are not interested in ending malaria. We know how to end malaria. There used to be malaria in New Jersey and Massachusetts. Like We know how to end it. Walter Reed figured it out in the Panama Canal 120 years ago. You kill all the mosquitoes and you isolate all the patients so they don't get bitten by mosquitoes and pass it to anyone else. That's what you need to do. Maybe that's wrong, but don't correct me right now. (laughs) That's what you need to do. We know how to do it. He said that this vast charity apparatus internationally if they eliminated malaria, would all be out of jobs. They are not motivated to take the radical steps necessary to end their employment. Achieve their goal, but end their employment. So he, his research, is you've got to work around the international charity structure. You've got to try to subvert what they're doing. I think of another example, the friend who studied he was in Indonesia, he studies terrorism in Southeast Asia professor in Australia. Um, but he, uh, it was that, that huge tsunami in uh, the Indian Ocean. And so he was in uh, Sumatra, Banda Aceh, after the tsunami, you know, and um, he'd done this research. His research showed what the most, what he what he was studying was the most effective way to get uh, aid to those most impacted. So he's in this, he's in the city, and what's the first thing the UN is, I'm, I'm picking on the UN, analysis. it's very easy, if you're talking <laughs> international charity work. The first thing they were doing was building a row of Western-style big houses for their workers, right? So that they could live and help these people, but not in the lifestyle these folks were accustomed to, but rather in the lifestyle we are accustomed to. Whereas his research was just funnel the money to these local NGOs, right? Just get that impact. But then, what role do you have? If you're not there on the ground, living your Western lifestyle, making that impact, right? There's no glory for yourself if you just do it through someone who already exists on the ground. We're not interested. You—you you, got to understand the futility, right? You're doing this work, and you just feel it great on you, wearies you, as it did the preacher. It wearies you. Let me talk a little bit about Christian mission, because I'll, I'll say this about the work that I do. It's like, on the one hand, I know I'm supposed to, as a Christian minister, say that like all jobs are equal in the eyes of God. This is true, <laughs> right? It is not more virtuous to do full-time Christian ministry work than to do other kinds of, than to work on Wall Street. Inherently, it's not more virtuous. You may have less temptation to riches, but it's not more virtuous. But you know, here's the thing, I love my job. I feel the purpose and meaning in my job. I didn't want those jobs, all those other jobs. I wanted to do something where I felt what I do has an impact. What I do matters. What I do saves people. And, you know, frankly, I believe that. There are rewards. You know, you do this work and you listen to people when they're broken and struggling. I was broken and struggling and people listened to me here in this building. You listen to people, you work with people, you share the good news of Jesus Christ. And great things happen. I had this, I felt this about my own life when I was young. I was first deeply depressed at 14. I felt the, few, the weariness of life, sadly, <laughs> at first at 14. And you know, people poured love into my life. I always say this, I will I'll continue saying this so long as I have speech. People poured love into my life, in, and I could not return it. I did not return it. Right? Christian people, people in my church, they loved me and they poured it into me. And this is good work. It's purposeful work. I encourage you to go into it. But it would be false for me to say it is free from ever, like, if, if you go into it, the same way we go into all these other jobs, just thinking, what, how can I get meaning out of this under the sun in this life from these things? How can it make me feel purposeful or famous, right? How can it give me no unhappy feelings and just happiness and satisfaction? Right? It is the last, frankly, it is the last job you should go into, if that's your goal. I, I was reading a book recently, it was uh, this was Christian book, a lot of very practical advice. It was basically how to deal with burnout. And uh, the advice was three things, sleep, diet, and exercise. Sleep, diet, and exercise. And this is just, just I'll just focus on sleep. You know, like 90%, Why? Like, I don't know, but 90% per- of like all the anxiety students feel, and the burnout they feel, undergraduates at Princeton could be fixed by a regular, proper sleep schedule. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Stephen. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know you'd be here. <laughs> 90%, you know, it's like, st- the staff are like a broken record, you know. People are like, oh, my life is falling apart, you know, and it's like, you know, it's like, oh, my, you know, I mean, My friend who I mentioned who's the like passionate sincere doctor, he lived next door to me the one year. It's like his lung collapsed multiple times that semester. And why like he would work, he'd pull these all-nighters, repeated all nighters. You know, and then he'd crash for like three days straight. And then he'd pull repeated all-nighters. And he was just such a hard worker, so sincere, willing to like sacrifice his health. Anyway, so this book, that's this prescription. Anyway, take that part. Sleep. Sleep. Sleep, friends. And uh, but he had this phrase in there, though, this this pastor writing this book, like sleep, diet, and exercise. And he said, anyone I met, like who was you know struggling with depression or burnout, like who I gave this prescription to, it worked for everyone. Everyone, it solved the problem of the burnout or the depression. And I'm like, is that a typo? It's like, he way better at this job than I am? That may well be true, but is he just like way better at this job than like everyone I know who's in this job? I can't say that about myself. I mean, I've seen people, I've, had, I've seen people who like will say, you know, my life was saved by those Christians, who, those brothers and sisters in Christ who loved me. Right? They stood in the gap. That was the difference. I've heard that many times. People whose lives were transformed. Many, many successes. But I cannot say that it worked every time. I mean, I'm, I'm going to tell you a very un- unhappy story right now. My worst story from my time at, at, in ministry. You know, and this was a student when I, he was a student when I was a student. He was a freshman when I was a senior. You know, he came into a room down in Spelman. He was someone who needed love poured into him. Right? This is the strategy. Right? I, we poured love, a whole group of us. And we took him in under our wing. Like, he wasn't, you know, he'd come in, he's, he wasn't really good at small talk. He'd just, like, launch in straight with, like, direct criticisms. You know, we had sat down for dinner, and he said to, you know, my other friend, you're a very loud person, you know? <laughs> which was true. I could have said it to me. I would, would have been more appropriate. But um, uh, just stuff like that. And we took him in under our wing, and we showed him. you know, he was suicidal before we ever met him for the first time. He tried to take his life before we'd ever met him. And we just, we persevered with him. You know, we persevered with him year after year. I was on the phone, I, phone with him to talk him down from attempts. Middle of the night, um, we were determined. I, you know, I, I had confidence. I've seen that cycle many times before, and I've seen it since. And it's like we need to just do what we can. We need to give our utmost. And uh, you heard me say it's a tragic story. You know, one day, uh, one of the circle of friends, Gareth, you know, he, well, the university had told him he had to leave after one time. And um, he'd moved away, and, you know, Frank called up and said he'd taken it online. And I called his mother. I was off in a hotel with my wife. She's on a business trip. And I talked to his mother. You know, those are days, like, I cannot say, like, oh, yeah, like, this job is great just for what's under the sun. Like, those, those times hurt. If we're really about loving people and caring for people, not writing people off when they struggle, not ignoring them, not taking a step back, sometimes it hurts. I mean that sometimes you create victories. Sometimes it feels good. You're like, wow, God used us to afford, accomplish this great thing. But you know what? We live in a fallen world, subject to futility, to vanity. Now, I cannot say that easy prescriptions have worked in every case. I pray, you know, I know a number of us here struggle with, struggled with depression. Quite a few of us, no doubt. Some of you secretly, probably. Some of us in open, in the open. And uh, we are in it. If you're in it, what, what it needs to be a Christian is to be in it to the end. people. To be in it all the way. And even when it's hard. But, you know, so I felt that. I felt that weirdness. It's, it's hard. I think of an example. Listen, I want to transition then to escape from futility, escape. This is the, I think this example, this pastor, I know so many pastors. In my mother's family, everyone was a pastor. And, uh, and uh, this one pastor, friend of the family, not a relative, friend of the family. And, you know, he'd like, he's very, he's like 90, 89 now, um, And his pastorates, his first pastor, he's describing his first pastor. This is like futility in the ministry. It's actually one of the hardest things about ministry is other Christians. Um, His first pastor, he's in this small rural church back in the early 50s. You know, he shows up, and there's this, like, old man, and it's like, he runs the church. He's one of the elders. And he, like, after the service, he'd sit the pastor down and count out his money, you know, on the table, his meager earnings. And this guy who ran the church, who was the power in the church, it was the church he'd grown up in, and he felt he owned it, and everyone else agreed with that He would, you know, he would sit there, and as soon as the guy went up to start his sermon, he'd turn his hearing aid off and go to sleep. And once the sermon was over, he'd turn the hearing aid back on. Right? This is this guy's first pastor. Um talk about futility, right? Chasing out the door you're like, why am I here and what am I doing? And this pastor, and he said to me, you know what, he was. In regular ministry, like 45 years, 50 years. And he's like, all his pastorates were bad. <laughs> this is what he said. All his pastorates were bad. Every pastor I know had at least one really bad pastor. At least one, like one church that kicked them out. Or, you know, there's some huge terrible issue um, that comes from, you know, being broken people in a fallen world. But this pastor was like all his churches. I and mean, he's such a, like, great pastor. That's the thing. It's not because, I mean, some some pastors are just not particularly gifted at the job. Um, but, like, he, this is not him, right? He was dedicated. He just had a hard road his whole life. And then when he retired from full-time ministry, he went into, like, doing these temporary pastures two years here and two years there. And he was just, like, so free for him because you don't really need to care what people think of you because, like, they can if they fire you, that's fine. Right? And then he... And what's most striking to me about him is here he is in his 80s, And he has felt, this is the key thing, he is not just young and energetic, he is old and energetic. He's not energetic because life is easy. He's energetic despite having as much experience as the preacher, as Solomon, of the futility of the world. Fifty years of bad churches. Fifty, how did he stay in it? Right? How did he stay in it? Like, if he was only doing it for reasons under the sun, he would have quit year like 12, maybe 22 if he was really slow at the <laughs> octane, right? But he kept at it. And here in his old age, he is so fruitful in his ministry. You know, he's just there. He has this list of people far and wide in all these different places in which he's ministered. They're sick. He calls. He has the wisdom to, like, make it brief. You know, my dad was in the hospital a month this summer. And, uh, you know, he would call every night. But, you know, not in the, like, burdensome, like, I'm going to talk to you now for 15 minutes um, or have you comfort me because I'm so upset that you're sick. You know, he would call and ask my mother. It was succinct and sincere and heartfelt. And he's maintaining this at 89. At 89. And how? This is the most important. Okay, so futility. Maybe you understand that fully in your own life already. Maybe some of us will, will go through stages in life. Where we'll learn new levels of futility. You may go down the road a really long time thinking it will provide what you want and then discover but this guy, he felt it all, and yet there he is, hopeful. There he is, serving. There he is, joyful. At the end of days, having run the race, not weary. I look at that and I say, This is what I want. How can I get this? So let's, let's, let me close with this escape. Escape from futility. Now, you've got to come back next week and the week after. You've got to come back next week and the week after. But let me give you a foretaste. How do we escape? First, we need to learn. First, we need to learn. Like, he, Solomon, or if it's another writer, the preacher, like, he messed up his life so badly for so many years to help you guys out. <laughs> right? People have tried everything to find meaning in this life. Right? They've tried alcohol and sex. They've tried building palaces. They've tried... Every pleasure, giving, denying their eyes nothing. They've tried knowledge. They've tried wisdom under the sun. Learn from that. Be saved from going down paths longer than you need to. And more importantly, when you find found you've gone down a path a really long way, and then all of a sudden it hits you. You know, oh, I went into medicine thinking every day I would feel valued. And here I find many days I find myself rejected either by the patients or by the bureaucracy um, or by the computer systems you have to deal with. Um, when you reach that point, you're like, ah, it's a vapor. Right? I was clinging on to this all these years, and it's vapor. Learn. Learn from the example of the writer, to Ecclesi- uh, writer of Ecclesiastes. Learn from this example. And say, yeah, okay, I heard about this, that this could turn out to be futility. In that moment, there can be despair. Right? There is often this despair, the weariness, the hatred that the preacher talks about. But this is an opportunity to say, ah, there must, is there something more? And so this is the second. So first, learn. Learn from these examples. Don't go down these roads. But second, listen. Listen, look. All right, I talked about that image. Ecclesiastes takes us to the brink of hell. It's bringing us to the pit and looking at all that is broken in this world. And then lifts our eyes to the threshold of heaven. It doesn't go all the way because he's speaking far before Christ. But it lifts our eyes to the threshold of heaven. Look. When you're in that point and you feel that futility, and this this may be a great moment, these may be the key, important moments in your life where God really speaks to you, where change actually happens, where true hope and enduring joy can actually enter into your life. Look. Look up. Later, to get ahead of ourselves a little bit, chapter 3, Just to give you a little bit of a taste, chapter 3, verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also he has put eternity into man's hearts, this is God, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end, it's still a mystery to us, but he has put eternity into man's heart. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all this toil. That is God's gift to man. We must look to what is not under the sun, but above the sun. We must look. I encourage you, if you're not a believer, you know, if you're uncertain, because you know, I suppose people can look at me and say, well, my option is nihilism, and I'll just run with that. <laughs> Another one of my dear friends, he's like, I just believe the lie. I don't believe love exists or purpose or meaning, but I have to live my life as if it does, and so that's what I'm doing. I want to say to you there's something more. Look up to God. Look up to God. Look into the scriptures to find God. Look even into Ecclesiastes. Read, as my friend did years ago, read it through a few times and highlight, sure, things maybe that resonate with you that you struggle with, feel burdened by, feel exhausted by, but highlight also things that say, yes, even you can be 89, you can have had 50 years of Bad churches, terrible Christian people to deal with, and you can be not filled with that poison of envy or pride or ego or selfishness or greed, but rather your eyes can be open to receiving what you have as a gift, not seeking out of it meaning, but receiving it from its creator as a gift, and understanding what it means to have joy and to have hope and to be able to do work that is good and valuable. Indeed, God has put eternity in our hearts. Come back next week for more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. And Heavenly Father, I, I pray again. I pray for all of us here. Some of us are maybe naturally joyful and happy. Some of us are naturally weary of the world. Uh, Lord God. Some of us hide it really, really well for a really long time. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we have this book, Ecclesiastes, that looks at the brokenness of the world, looks it in the face, and describes it for what it is. But at the same time, Heavenly Father, that provides pointers, that provides glimmers of the true peace and joy that is found in being a child of God, even in the face of this broken world, even in the face of whatever's happened in our lives in the face of whatever will happen to us in the future, even in the reality that we are here only for a short time, and we are not in control of our own, the, the course of our own lives. And, uh, I thank you for the examples we have of so many saints, so many saints who are willing to, are able by your spirit, because it's truly a supernatural thing, that even in the face of great difficulty, of great burdens, we're able to love others, to not withdraw to cynicism or bitterness, or to just merely grow tired, but Heavenly Father, who sustain their service, who are sustained in their love for each other. Because their hope is not in this world, not in things under the sun, not in themselves, but in you, Lord God, creator of heaven and earth, in your Son, Jesus Christ, crucified for our sins, resurrected that we might have eternal life. We pray this in His name. Amen.